In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Celeste Villalobos-Tama joins us this week on Money Tales. Celeste is navigating the intricate tapestry of both motherhood and daughterhood. She shares how she's juggling her responsibilities that range from managing a bustling household with her own young family, building out her business as a solopreneur, and helping her aging parents. As she grapples with decisions that shape her present and also impact her future, Celeste leans on the strength of family bonds, especially her confidant and partner in crime, her sister. Let me tell you more about Celeste. She's the Chief Learning Officer at Little Owl Consulting. She's an experienced consultant with a demonstrated history of working in the tech industry. Celeste enjoys breaking barriers and creating space for change, allowing teams to move forward creatively and productively with compassion and increased trust. As a former educator and mom of two boys, her heart is focused on human growth and potential. Here are three key money topics Celeste hits on in this conversation. First, how a desire for more money caused her to shift careers. Second, how she started her own business because she wanted control to choose her own clients and the projects she'd work on. And third, how in leadership and in life, Celeste observes that people are not really afraid to change or afraid to talk about things. Rather, they're afraid of loss. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now on to our conversation with Celeste Villalobos-Talman. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Breger. Sandy, I was recently reading an article in Entrepreneur Magazine. It was really the title that caught my attention, which is The Psychology of Saving Money, How to Train Your Brain to Save. Hmm, that is evocative. I know. And I was particularly interested around the training of your brain around money. So talking about money and your relationship around money. So obviously with what we're doing here at Money Tales, I was intrigued. Were there any interesting tips or tricks that haven't come up in the podcast? I think it reinforces a lot. I love this idea of retraining our brain and the research in neuroplasticity. They were going through the savings and spending habits that are governed by just a small, as they call it, constellation of behavioral biases. A small constellation of behavioral biases. I might have to use that. I know. And it went from your mental accounting, how we classify funds differently based on subjective criteria, loss aversion, understanding your money mindset, mm. identify your financial goals and values, then they start giving you tips. 
I thought maybe you can even talk about conversations you've had with clients, how you bring this to life. I was really appreciating that healthy habits can literally retrain your brain and that they talked about when you build these new habits, your brain creates new connections mm-hmm. and cognitive pathways, making these new habits a part of your identity. And I love that. Not just that they're habits, they're just part of who you are. I've seen that in person with family members and with clients. And we talk about this a lot on Money Tales. Get folks focused on your values and your purpose. Mm. If you're really clear on your values and your purpose and you apply those to money decisions and your money habits, magic starts to happen. Magic with constellations of... Of behavioral biases. (laughs) There you go. What a great opportunity then to pivot to our guest today, see if she has any thoughts on this. Celeste Villalobos Tamat, welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Hey there, how's it going? Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Would you briefly introduce yourself and provide a couple pivotal moments that really impacted you influencing the person you are today? I am a consultant. I do a lot of leadership development. I started out as a teacher teaching high school and public education. And after grad school, surprisingly found myself at Google. So not really the path that I was planning to take at all, but that's where I ended up. I grew up in San Jose, California. I have a small little family of my own. I have two sons and a husband. My kids are 10 and 6, and I live in San Francisco, California now. Mm, Celeste, what a nice introduction. I always like to go back in time. Would you share a time in your upbringing when money started having meaning to you and what was going on at that time? Yeah, I wanted some guest jeans. Oh, they yeah. were <laughs> those were the best. They were I so expensive. Too. Yes, back in the 80s, $80 a pair of jeans. And I knew better than to even ask my parents for them. I was just like, I can't ask for these jeans. My parents will just laugh at me. And I think that's when I was like, hmm, I need to make my own money. And so I started babysitting and making money doing that. I had a good time. And then I noticed the demand for my babysitting was really high, especially on, let's say, New Year's or some kind of holiday occasion. So a friend of mine and I, we started a business where we would babysit together so that we could have multiple children and make more money in a session. (laughs) Or we would go to birthday parties and the parents would pay us to like entertain and watch the kids so the parents could enjoy themselves at the birthday party. So it was like having babysitters there. I very quickly learned about money because I wanted some of my own and then was trying to figure out ways that I could make it faster. You were learning about business too and how to scale and market. Right? (laughs) That's brilliant, Celeste. Yeah. I wish I had those thoughts back in the day. I'm curious, did your family talk about money much? And especially as you were beginning to make money? Yeah, we never really got an allowance. I think maybe briefly there was that time of that, but mostly my dad was very formal. So he would talk to us about money. He would give us articles and books. And he was one of those dads that was like, I'm going to read this. You're going to read this. And then we're going to have a quiz. (laughs) So he was always sending me articles all the way through now, right? So it's like one of those people is like flooding my inbox with stuff. 
And he's been really great about talking about money, like even into his older age. So like being able to talk about what's going on with their finances and what's going to happen when they pass. He's pretty incredible in that way, especially for somebody of his generation, I think. And then my mom kind of handled more of the day-to-day money. So she's the person that paid the bills. And also a thing of the 80s that I remember my mom doing was always being really aware of how much things were costing in terms of to use a credit card, for example. I remember her switching the balances from one card to another, always trying to find a good deal on things. So she was that person, whereas my dad was the investor. Mom was the saver, dad was the investor. Yeah. Mom was a money magician, kind of moving things around. (laughs) Yes, she was. I was going to say she almost had this fantasy. She didn't have formal education about money, but she did tell me some really important things that I think have made a difference in my life. And they're so simple because they stuck. I remember when I had a job and I was going to get my first raise and I was really excited. And she goes, oh, you know what a secret is to do? Pretend that you did not get the raise and take all that money and put it away and just don't even think about it. Just pretend it didn't happen, right? Save, save, save. Yeah. And so that's a simple way to think about it. But there were times that I literally did that. So your parents are molding you. They're engaging you in different conversations about money as you're growing up. You're a thriving entrepreneur as a young person. (laughs) Did you purchase any guest jeans for yourself? (laughs) I don't think I did. I think you're a kid and they're fads. I had other things I wanted to purchase. I wanted to decorate kids. To sell? Yes, exactly. I would buy them and decorate them and then sell them. So I kind of stopped maybe buying stuff for myself and was like, how can I keep making more money? So So the focus is on money. I'm curious, as you moved on to college and you mentioned graduate school, how are you thinking about money as you transitioned into adulthood? That was a very weird thing because I was very interested in money, very entrepreneurial. And at the same time, I had a huge passion for like helping people, which is why I decided to go into teaching. And I was really specific about what communities I taught in. I did public school. I did communities where there was a lot of diversity, kids that were the first in their family to go to college. It kind of became like this push-pull where I was interested in that, but I was also interested in these other things that were important, like taking care of people and changing the world. And I remember my dad saying, you should get into computers, right? Like, <laughs> Plastics. You know, we're in, <laughs> yeah, we're in Silicon Valley. Yahoo is bubbling up and he's telling me this, but I'm just like at college and I'm like, I'm going to change the world. I want to teach. And sometimes I think about this, like, oh, darn, if I would have done what he said first and then taught afterwards, I would have been better shape now. But instead I taught first. I was a teacher for a long time not getting paid a ton. And then I did end up in computers. Just quickly about those years of being a teacher, not getting paid very much. What was that like for you? At first it was okay because I was young, but I also had a limited belief system, I guess. I thought, oh, I'm always going to make $45,000 a year. That's it. I'm going to be a teacher forever. And I remember working... 14-hour days, working really hard, trying to make a difference. And then I think I wanted other things. I bought a condo and started paying for that. And then I was like, oh, I also want to travel and I want to do all these other things. And 
I don't want to just be at the same level forever and ever. In teaching, you can see the pay scale. It's very transparent. They hand it to you and it's like, how many years have you been teaching? Do you have any extra degrees? And then you just go up and you can see exactly where you're going to be. And I think I kind of was like, oh, I want something different, but I didn't know what that was. And I briefly made a transition to following something that seemed fun. I was trying to be a salsa instructor for a while, which very quickly I was like, oh, I'm going to make even less money and I have to work on nights and weekends. (laughs) So forget (laughs) this. And being at Google was kind of an accident. I was applying everywhere, trying to leave teaching. I had no idea that my skills were transferable into corporate. So when I actually moved into Google, I was recruiting. And when I was there, I was not really that excited about what I was doing. And I found out that there was something called learning and development. And I was like, oh my God, I am super qualified for this. So I applied into that kind of role and I ended up completely shifting using all of my skills as a teacher, a facilitator, but kind of by accident because you know, my family didn't have access to the corporate world. My dad was basically a mechanic and my mom was a nurse and my mom's sisters were teachers. I was very like, I'm going to do what my family did. When my dad said go into computers, I was like, I don't like computers. (laughs) I don't want to be an engineer. But I didn't realize that there was this whole other world inside of business where you can do almost anything. There's sales, there's marketing, there's facilities management. There's people who do project management and there's education inside HR if you want to be working with people. So I just had no concept of that. So I feel really lucky that I accidentally found that. But I do feel like one thing that would be important to say to people in this podcast is talk to people and find out what's out there in ways that you can transfer your skills into different places because there's so many ways to take whatever skills that you have and work in a totally different environment, a different industry than you're currently in. So that's such an important message. You're not stuck where you are. You've made a big investment of time and dollars by going back to graduate school and getting your MBA. What were you thinking at the time? What was motivating you? Was it this desire that starting to want more home travel, things like that? I think it was that, but I also was not satisfied with the work that I was doing. It wasn't quite right. I wanted to change things in the world and being a classroom teacher wasn't really hitting the mark. So I have been really motivated my whole life by what Sandy was talking about, trying to find my purpose, trying to find meaning. And that has been a place where I always pivot. So for me, I was like, this is not big enough. It's not hitting. Like I loved working with my students, but I wanted more impact. And I initially actually got my master's in education. So I hadn't even thought about business. But while I was there, I was at Harvard and you're able to go anywhere on the campus and take any classes. So you're in education, but you can take a law class or you can go to the Kennedy School of Government. And that's where I started taking leadership development classes was at the Kennedy School of Government. And I found this passion And the way that they taught was so transformational. It was just in the moment, in the room. It was exciting. And that's what I actually ended up doing when I was at Google, that kind of work. This whole world opens up for you. It changes not only how you're executing on your purpose of making the world better, but it changes your money situation. 
majorly. What was that like? Well, at first it wasn't a big jump. At first I was getting paid kind of the same, but then Google went through this time where there was a lot of competition in the market and Facebook started to take away (laughs) all of their employees, I think. They did this huge increase where they gave people, I think, 10 to 20% more than they were making anyways to get people to stay. But then they also reevaluated pay. And my pay went up this one time 50%. Holy cow. Yeah. Were you acting on your mom's advice at that moment? I did. I totally did. And then later, there was another time where I had like a 20% increase in pay. And I think I started working 80%. I was like, oh, I can just work four days a week now. It was kind of crazy. You made decisions that worked for you. Yeah. So then you left Google, though, and you started your own business, Little Owl Consulting. Why? Was it that entrepreneurial desire, your next painting kids adventure? Yeah, (laughs) it was a little bit of that. But also I had a family. I had already had one child and I had been working at Google. They're super flexible and amazing. I was working 60% at one time and then 80. But I just kind of felt like, oh my gosh, I have another child coming. I kind of want something more flexible. And I also want choice. I want to be able to choose the clients I'm working with. So inside of Google, a call would come in about a team that was having trouble and like, you have to do it. You're working with the company, so you don't have a choice. I just wanted to be a little more mindful. And I also wanted to, again, I think, make more of a difference. So I started to realize that I was really good at helping teams that were in major crisis not talking to each other, not moving forward. And I really loved having these deep conversations and getting people to say the unspeakable and moving forward. Ooh, how did you do that? Getting to the unspeakable is really hard. Especially money, right? Because for many people, it is an unspeakable. So what can our listeners learn from your insights there? I think it's a little bit about being courageous enough to be the person in the room that is going to ask a difficult question and then is going to hold the space and let people kind of sit there. You mean like pause, let that awkward silence continue, let it build and allow people to answer with their time? Yeah. And I think also before I have sessions with teams, I do interviews with people on the team. And I think that this could apply with families in money. Absolutely. That's what we do when we have multi-generational family meetings. So yes, keep going. exactly. Yeah. So like talking to people and getting the real deal about what's going on. One thing to know in leadership and in life is that people are not really afraid to change or afraid to talk about things. They're afraid of loss. So when you're talking to your parents and they seem to not be wanting to talk about the future, there could be a fear there. There could be loss. It could be loss of control. It can be loss of their role as the head of the family or the loss of their life. Like they don't want to talk about dying, you know? And that's the same in teams. There's both those pre-conversations and kind of listening to the song beneath the words, like what's going on for this person? but then also starting to build allies that you can bring in. So I think in a family money conversation or on a team, there are people that want to say certain things, but they might also be afraid. So building those partnerships and allies so that when you are the person that's bringing up the tough question, 
you can be like, hey, mom, remember what you said? I know you want to talk about this. Or if it's a team, you know, somebody in the room that kind of is willing to go there if they have some support. All of what you're saying, Celeste, makes me wonder about something you mentioned earlier in our conversation and your father talking with you now about money and the end of his life and your mom's life and kind of what would happen. And I'm curious, as someone who is an expert at these hard conversations, what's it been like for you as a daughter being pulled into those conversations? Sometimes it's annoying because I'm just like, ah, like (laughs) I don't want to deal with this right now. Especially when you have children in your own family, you're like, oh my God, I have to think about my money and now I have to think about your money or, you know, your house and your roof and the taxes. And I think the learning curve is really intimidating, knowing that I have to learn maybe how to manage wealth, right? I mean, my parents are not rich by any means. My dad was a mechanic, my mom was a nurse, but you know, they do have a house in the Bay Area. And my dad has told us, hey, you really need to pay attention because if you don't take care of things in a certain time after our passing, the laws can really mess things up, the taxes. And I do feel really intimidated about learning all of that stuff and then making a mistake, you know, the fear of making a mistake. How are you thinking more about that, Celeste? Because it's common fears, it's overwhelming. Your dad is amazing. He's giving you these really valuable gifts, but at the same time, it's almost too much and it's an emotional topic. How are you processing through? It sounds like you might have some siblings. Yeah. Are you talking with them? I am. (laughs) How are you handling these upcoming questions? It's just my sister and I. So we do a lot of venting about our frustrations. Our family is very jokey. So we all make jokes together. And that also includes my mom and dad. So there's some teasing going on to, you know, kind of lighten the mood around these topics. And my sister and I do divide and conquer a little bit. Right now, she was just telling me that my dad wants to do some work on the yard or something finally. And she's like talking with me about how she's like, oh my God, I want to help them and tell them maybe what to do because I'm thinking we're going to end up having this property. So I want to have input. She goes, but I also don't want to take away their autonomy. So we talk about timing of things. We also talk about not pushing them too much. There's been times where we've been like, oh my God, they need to paint the house right now. And this laundry list of things they should do right now. And then when there's pushback from them, we also talk so that we can have more empathy for my parents. It's too much for dad. We'll figure it out later. We just need to let it go. Mm. And I also talk a little bit with my husband also. I mean, he's definitely more financial savvy than I am. He's a good help. We've also created documents. We have Google documents that when my dad tells us something, I try to write it down and have a link so that when I'm in crisis, when they die, I'm not freaking out also about that. It's kind of listed somewhere. That's a great tip. Thank you for sharing that one. It sounds like you have an ally in your sister. For sure. I really appreciate your sharing with us how these conversations have been going on. You're really bringing light to how fragile and light and heavy they can be all at Mm -hmm. the same time. Yeah. I'm curious, again, as someone who has hard conversations and loves having them, 
What's been your most satisfying conversation about money? That is a really difficult one. Maybe it's a conversation with myself, actually. When I did leave Google and started my business, I had clients in the beginning, but then there was a period of years, especially with the pandemic, where I was not working and generating income. And the conversation that I've had with myself is around the value of money, which is one thing, and the value of unpaid labor versus paid labor, and also my own value, knowing that for me personally, I do not feel comfortable being a person that is not generating income. And at the same time, realizing that I have a lot to learn. And instead of being afraid of it, I need to kind of lean into it so that I can continue to be able to make choices. So being able to choose what I'm working on is a privilege. And also to be able to continue to help people in my family and in my community. So I'm starting to see it more of like, instead of this dirty topic or this shameful topic, we don't want to talk about money. It's like, no, we do want to talk about money. And as a woman, it's really important to know and learn about it and facilitate the things you want to do with your life. Here, here. Celeste, why is it so important to you to make money besides the obvious of paying bills and things like that? But deeper than that, why is it so important to you? There are a lot of people I want to help. I mean, I have family members who have not been able to have the same opportunities as me. I want to be able to do what I've been doing in terms of choice with my work also. You know, in some periods of my life, work more and other periods scale back. I'm anticipating that my parents are going to need help and care. And I would like to not get consumed by that, but also be able to like adjust my schedule. And I think that having money allows me to have choices like that. Celeste, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? Oh man, probably my husband. (laughs) He's starting a startup right now and I'm trying to relaunch my business. So we're both like low income generating right now and putting out new stuff. And we definitely need to talk about money and budgeting again. We've talked about it a lot leading up to these choices, but you know, it's not a one-time conversation. Oh, it isn't. That sounds like a very exciting time. And I'm just curious about the dynamics with both of you in startup relaunch mode. Does it make it harder to find time and find the energy for those conversations? Or is it something you're looking forward to? It's a both and. I think that part of me doesn't want to have those conversations because I don't want to maybe find out that I need to get a regular job for a while or something like that. But talking about the money and knowing what's actually going on, you're like, oh, I can see a bigger picture. And that is empowering instead of intimidating. That's what it's about. The conversations are intended to be so freeing. Celeste, this conversation has been amazing. Where's the best place for our listeners to find you? I have a website. It's www.littleowlconsulting.com. Well, thank you for sharing your stories and your wisdom around money with us on Money Tales. Yeah, thanks for having me, you guys. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. 
If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcast at See you next time.